The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I am your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And as most of you know, you can listen to us every week, 10 to 11, Eastern Time Live, and then at the end of the day, we archive the show, and you can download it on your, get an MP3 and listen to us all the time, or whenever you want. Anyway, I have two guests this morning, two really good guests. My first guest, who is here with us now, is Ken Budd. He's author of The Voluntourist. The Voluntourist. Um, his book is a memoir. Uh, it's a memoir about losing his father, accepting his fate, and then finding his destiny by volunteering around the world. Second guest is Barney Salzberg. And uh, Barney, his new book, and he's written several books, apparently 40 children's books. Uh, this is his 41st book, and it's called Arlo Needs Glasses. One out of five school-age children need eyeglasses. And uh, this particular author, who's described as a beloved children's author, is here to show them just how lucky they are, because most kids would not consider themselves lucky when they have to wear glasses. But first, Ken Budd, the voluntourist. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you. Very good to be here. Great to have you. All right, so I'm really, I'm a traveler. I'm a world traveler, so I love to have guests who travel around the world, but you do not just traveling. You're not sitting around at resorts. You do very special kinds of things. Um, but, Ken, the book is a memoir. Your father, um, somebody obviously who you really respected and didn't expect him to die so early. That was the, the shock, apparently, to you. And uh, So tell us, what happened to him, and how did that prompt you to write the book? Uh, yeah, well, my father had been uh, retired for about a year, and he was playing golf one day, and he finished 18 holes and just collapsed. And we just didn't see it coming, and then he was in good shape you know there was none of the warning signs and yeah he was a, a special guy he'd grown up very poor but he was smart and he was ambitious and he made it to upper management with fortune 500 companies but but he never forgot where he came from and then he always encouraged people and after he passed away people write letters and they're telling us you know your father changed my life and i read these letters and thought well you know what are people going to say when i'm gone and that helped start this journey when he read those letters, uh, condolence letters, and they said my, your dad changed their lives. Uh, were you surprised? I mean, did you, did you see him in that way? I mean, did you, what was your experience with him? I and mean, were you were surprised that, uh, uh, you know, when people wrote these letters about what he had done for them or how he had done it? Or, and, and did he just drop dead of a heart attack? Is that what happened? He did, yes. And, yeah. yeah, I always knew that this was a special man, and he was a very, you know, he was a quiet man, but he was a very strong man, and at the same time, and and I knew all that he had achieved. And, you know, as a kid, he was, he was a classic workaholic. So, you know, I just my image of him is always working, even when he was home. So I knew those things about him. But it, I didn't really get a glimpse of the other side until it was actually a year before his death. And, and we were at his retirement party. And there was this huge turnout for this thing. And, and all these people were telling me, I've, I've never seen a turnout. But, but one of his 
close friends told me, you know, about a third of the people here in this room, your father laid off a few months ago because they were closing the facility. And he said they were there because they knew that he had fought for them and he had gotten every employee a management-level severance package. So I was finding out these things even in the year before he died. And how old were you when this, when this was happening? Uh, when he died, I was about 39. Okay, so you were middle-aged at the time, too. And, and do you have siblings? I like to get the background. Uh, I have one sister, but, and, and what was also going on at the same time here was um, my wife and I, and I've known my wife since the sixth grade, you know, we're lifelong friends and partners, and, but it was looking like we weren't going to have children, so I was kind of coming to terms with that and, and just sort of a general sense of, you know, what am I doing here that really matters? And so all these things were sort of swirling, and then when my father died, it sort of pulled the lid off it. So your father dies, you're learning all, and you obviously said it, the retirement party, all these things about how he had, in a positive way, really fought for other people and done all this stuff at work. So what brought you, you know, I like to hear, like, what brought you to the point, you know, after the funeral, after, you know, responding to all those people who loved him, what went through your mind? Like you said, you're thinking, now what am I going to do with my, how am I going to impact the world like he did? Is that what you, you know, is that, was that part of the process? Yeah, and it was just within, you know, within our own little world. And then I, I certainly wasn't thinking, you know, I think I'll start this journey and volunteer around the world. It just said that, it just sort of happened serendipitously that an opportunity came up through my job to volunteer with an organization called Rebuilding Together in New Orleans. And without really thinking about it, I just immediately said, yes, I want to do this, and that sort of started this thing. So your job, what were you doing at the time? Or... Uh, I'm an editor with the Association Magazine, and they were doing some work with this organization, so that provided opportunities to volunteer. Right, so that was, that was Hurricane Katrina? Yeah, and when I went there, it was about nine months after the flood, and we were working to help rebuild homes down there. So you went down there, you started rebuilding homes, and, you know, I know... Um, and it's interesting because as a social worker, I used to get a lot of, you know, emails about organizations and you could go and help as a social worker. And when it first happened, and I think a lot of people were this way, kind of like, oh, I'm going to go, I need to do something. But in the end, all I did was send money. Mm-hmm. And so, but you did more than that. And so I kind of want to know what prompted you to actually go. I mean, you know, like, I'm not just going to send money. I am going to go there and do something. Well, you know, just... From a personal standpoint, you know, I'm, I was kind of coming to terms with these issues, and I'm not a, like, sit on the couch with Oprah and share my feelings <laughs> kind of guy. So I didn't realize that You have to back, do it on the show today a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, looking back, I now realize this was like a type of therapy in a way of, of coming to terms with, you know, my grief on my father and my grief at not being a father. I didn't know that at the time. But um, and the thing about going to places like New Orleans is, and everywhere I went, I was sort of skeptical you know, what can someone like me who, you know, they asked for unskilled volunteers, and I said, well, that's great. I have no skills whatsoever. Yeah. I'm perfect for this job. <laughs> that's right. I'm ideally suited. You know, as someone who's only there a week and doesn't have a lot to offer, what difference can you really make? And I struggled with that everywhere I went. But I came to see that there's a certain value in small gestures, and small gestures can become large gestures when we all do them. So, And not everyone can take the time to go to New Orleans, but if we all do those little things, it does add up. Yeah, I think that's so important what you said, you know, you know, baby steps. You can just do one thing. It doesn't have to be you have to save the whole uh, you know, the whole state or all the people or, you know, and and I think it has a rippling effect. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, when you do, yeah. So what exactly did happen? What did you do, unskilled person, but you did have something <laughs> to offer? 
Well, the way they, they work it is it's like unskilled people like me would come in and say, got a house, and then you would have the skilled people, the contractors who are also volunteering, and they would do, they would rewire homes and put in new walls. And then the unskilled people come back and they do the painting and they help move people back in and we haul trash and things like that. So they do have it pretty well set up to take advantage of whatever skills you do have. And I would, uh, I'm making the assumption you're there with other unskilled people and skilled people, but the, and you, well, the camaraderie that must have developed amongst you, how did that affect you or what happened? Well, that's been one of the great unexpected benefits of these trips is all the people I've met who were also volunteering, uh, not just Americans, but I've made friends with many people from the UK and around the world. And, you know, it just exposes you to so many different viewpoints. And, you know, I, I, those, those friendships have been a great side benefit of this. It gives you a different perspective from viewing the world. You can't come back. I mean, obviously, it changes you, and whether you want it to change you or not, um, so uh, you did that. You were here. The, you you had, uh, Hurricane Katrina volunteered. Your wife, I'm assuming, was not with you. Uh, she came with me on two of the trips, but she was not in New Orleans, right? Because sometimes, and this is going to be my next question, and I know that New Orleans was just the beginning, and we want to get into all the other things that you've done and, as the volunteerist. But um, you know, when your partner, your spouse, doesn't go with you and doesn't share that, and then you come back and you've been, you know profoundly changed usually it impacts on your relationship with your partner and sometimes that's not always in a positive way because they you know they sort of are back in terms of the relationship where you were before you left so um am i putting words into your mouth i don't know no um no and it was you know and i am because neither my wife or myself are the most you know revealing of people it that created problems as well because i would internalize things and so she would too and so I think she thought I was cracking up at this point, but and perhaps I was, but uh, she was supportive. But yeah, at the same time, if I, I regret that she was not with me, but at the same time, part of doing all this this whole process wound up creating those feelings. You know, there was a point when I was traveling, and I remember thinking, you know, I just I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be without her, and and that's you know sometimes you have to create distance from your life to realize how much you cherish your life, and that happened on these trips. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, Okay, so when you came back and uh, you had been and done this, then what? Then you had to wait for another disaster to happen? Or did you... <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I wasn't scanning the newspapers hoping for Now, um, well, as fate would have it, I, I had an opportunity since I've been at my job for a long time. They have a program for long-term volunteers where you can take like a four-week mini sabbatical. So I, after my father's death, I thought, well, you know, I, don't, I could be hit by a truck tomorrow. I don't want to waste this. So I took it and I didn't want to spend the whole time, you know, sleeping late. So I thought, well, you know, we should do something meaningful. And so my wife came with me and we went to Costa Rica and taught English at a elementary school for two weeks. Now, Costa Rica is one of the, you taught English. Don't they have the highest literacy rate in in, um, in the Caribbean? Yeah, Costa Rica is like yeah. the Switzerland of Central America because they they don't have a military and because of that they've been able to invest more in education and healthcare. Yeah, so it's a highly literate country. Yes. So that would be a different kind of an experience, I would imagine, right? I mean, it's it's you're teaching literacy what to to well, the, yeah. The, the school where we were at, there were about eighty percent Nicaraguan because a lot of Nicaraguans come across the border to take advantage of you know the better economic opportunities. So. It was a mix, but yeah, we had a lot of Nicaraguan students. 
And is your wife, I, was, I didn't actually, I haven't asked you, like, what her profession is or what her non-profession, or <laughs> what she doesn't uh, do? She is a nurse practitioner and oh. has done, she herself did a medical trip years before in uh, Haiti. Uh, she has actual skills, unlike myself. So so she had done this You're before. You're a good couple. <laughs> right, we balance each other. You yeah. do. So uh, yeah, she she but she actually likes not doing the medical trip. She kind of enjoys doing something different. So teaching, so this is totally different. Obviously, you were building houses and rebuilding, helping in Katrina. Now the two of you together, and then um, teaching English. Did you have a plan for this, like how you were going to do your volunteerism around the world, like doing different types of things, obviously in different countries, or you know. Was there a plan for this, or did it just sort of, you know, happen? It was kind of both, actually. At this point, by the time we went to Costa Rica, there was no plan whatsoever. And when we were back, I thought, okay, I've done my little We Are the World shtick. It's it's time to be normal again. And then I started to realize that I had some unfinished business, and this was like the start of a journey, not the journey itself. So after that, yes, I very consciously said, okay, I want to go to – four places that I've never been. I want to go places that intimidate me. I want to do different things. And I want to really see myself in a different way. Because in Costa Rica, one of the volunteers told me, you only learn about yourself when you're outside your comfort zone. And I came to embrace that. I think that's so true. If you don't, and, and I mean, I, the word risk comes to me. If you don't, whatever the risk is for you, for each one of us, but if you don't take that risk, go to a place, like you said, that intimidates you, uh, where it's a challenge, like, not going to London, for instance, necessarily, <laughs> but where they speak English. Uh, but, okay, so you went to China. Um, tell us about that. Uh, I worked uh, with a, one of my best friends came with me, and we worked at a special needs school in China. And that was sort of a double whammy because I have no experience with special needs kids, and I don't speak Chinese. So <laughs> the, the first morning, it was overwhelming, and I had a little pad in my pocket, and I wrote culture shock overload because I just was like, you know, everywhere I went, I thought, well, this was a huge mistake. I really felt it <laughs> that first morning there. I think in China, and I was there strictly as a tourist, but it is difficult, even if you're not doing anything, because you, if one doesn't speak the language, and there is no way that you can even, you know, get by, like if in France or you know, Spanish or, you know, language that's similar. So it's really tough, I mean, to, be, to me, to be able to do what you did, teaching... So, well, it's I have you, what you provided support to faculty at a special needs school. So, what did you do, and what were the kids' special needs? Well, it was kind of a mix. Uh, there was you know, many of the kids were autistic. Uh, some had more developmental disabilities, and um, my main job was I was kind of paired with this one little boy who he himself had developmental disabilities, and so I would help him. He needed help, like writing Chinese characters and numbers. He needed someone to help guide his hand. He was a lot slower than the other kids, so they would take naps at this building across the street, and I would usually walk with him. Just, you know, the other teachers might take two or three kids, but he needed one person. So it was that, but, you know, what I came to see, especially in China, was that you go for that particular reason, but it's this intangible thing is that where the real value is. And partly it's this cultural exchange, but these teachers were incredibly difficult jobs, and these extraordinary patient women and having us there was like a break in the routine, and we were like an English-speaking novelty. And whenever I did something stupid, which was not infrequent, you know, they would laugh. And I heard after we left, one of the teachers said, you know, we seem to laugh more when we have volunteers here. So those benefits, I think, were important. Yeah, you inject uh, 
some humor into the situation. You know, people were able to stand back and take a look at themselves. Um, and were you and you two, you and your friend, were the only ones in that facility, or were there other Americans, or other Europeans, or people from other countries? We were the only ones. Most of the Americans, there were about 11 volunteers, and most of them were uh, teaching English to college students, which was very beneficial, I thought, because they these kids know how to they know the words. They just need practice speaking it. But uh, where we were was a fairly new placement, and not many people had come before us. So yeah, it was just the two of us. Were you in the city or were you in the country? We were in the city. We were in Xi'an. Xi'an. That's where the the soldiers uh, are, the terracotta, the terracotta warriors. warriors. Right. Uh, yeah. Well, I did that, but that so did another millions of other volunteers. That. <laughs> but do you have any comparison? I'm interested in terms of the facility. Like, how does it compare to, say, our facilities here in the United States? And they vary also, but uh, in taking care of children with special needs. Well, the woman who formed the school just kind of did it through her own determination and, and will. And because the way they explained it to us is that traditionally in China, special needs kids, the, the view has been, you know, you should keep them at home. And, and even now, they, they kept emphasizing it's much better now. But apparently even now, if you're a mother and you take your child to the park, someone might come up to you and say, you know, he really shouldn't be here. So, so this woman formed this school after she was in denial about her own son who was autistic and you know, went to see doctors and slept on the streets of Beijing to see doctors and finally decided, I am so wrong and I, he is going to be like this his whole life and I need to respect that. And so she formed a school with her other desperate mothers, as she called them, without really any government support. So, you know, the attitudes are getting better, but certainly different from what we have here at home. Yeah. So these kids are more stigmatized and the mothers and the families than they are here. Yeah, and I, I think like around where the school was, it was a little different because they the shop owners and people had gotten to know the kids. But, yeah, there are still probably more stigmas, even though it has improved, than there are here. I mean, what a journey you've taken. Now back to Ecuador. You were in Ecuador, and what were you doing in Ecuador? Because that was a whole different experience in the volunteerism. Right. Well, you know, I said I wanted to challenge myself, and that one was sort of a physical challenge. Uh, I worked in the Andes. There are scientists up there who are studying the effects of climate change on the cloud forest there and how it's affecting the plants and the animals. And to get to this place, there were no roads, so it was a two-hour hike just to get up to, to where we were staying. And uh, I feel like I'm in reasonable shape, but I, I felt like a chain smoker on that one. It's like, <laughs> you know, because the altitude and the humidity. And so we were mainly collecting data, entering data, you know, just doing kind of basic work that helps free the scientists up to do better things. And also they can run more projects when they have volunteers. You know, as I'm listening to you, that's a, it's such an interesting, uh, the choices that you made, because some of the stuff you're talking about, well, this one, for example, in Ecuador and helping the scientists, kind of like what kids perhaps may do in college as an internship. But here you are, 39, 40, whatever years old, and it gives you the opportunity. You're kind of doing a similar thing. Well, let's say in this situation, I don't know, it sounds like that. And um, I actually want to know, so what is the influence of uh, climate change um, well, there, what's happening there is it's causing the, the cloud forest to rise by, you know, a few feet probably or a foot every year or something like this. And, and it's this incredibly diverse area. They, they had told us that a, a patch of ground at that place in the Andes has more varieties of trees than the entire British Isles. So they're trying to get a handle on, on that. But also it's, they're just trying to get a handle on what lives there. You know, I, I tend to think that every part of the earth has been mapped out, and, and there you realize that was not the case. I mean, they still find new species of plants there. So, so it's sort of two-pronged what they're doing. It's, it's tracking what's there and finding out how it's being affected. 
Fantastic. I mean, you ha- I, the thing about this whole what you've done in this volunteerism, you've ta- it, 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 you've done such different kinds of things, which I think is interesting. Um, and it's not just helping people, or and that's a good thing. I'm not saying that, but it's like not just helping people where there are disasters in each country. I mean, you've you've been really creative about what you've done. Okay, Palestine. That's a challenge. Um, totally different than anything else or any of these other countries. What did you do there? Yeah, that one was a little different in that you know there was not a set. You know, you're going to work at a school or whatever. This was we really did something different every day, and and it was, you know, as simple as we helped a farmer clear his land so that, you know, you, they have to show they're working on it so the government can't claim it. Or, you know, we built rock walls. We cleaned the streets of Bethlehem in the days before Christmas as the tourists arrived. But I always thought in that case, what they were really trying to do was kind of show you what the Palestinian experience is like. What was the most challenging of all these, these um, voluntourist trips, would you say, for you? Or maybe, yeah, what was, I would say, what was the most challenging for you? Well, they were challenging in different ways. I mean, the Palestinian experience was challenging just because that one put me in sort of the deepest funk, just because, you know, these people live very stressful, difficult lives. Ecuador was physically challenging, but I think China was the one that I had the hardest time adjusting to, just because, you know, anytime you go to a place like China and you don't know the language, so that's challenging in and of itself. But to go somewhere where you're supposed to be helping and be productive I say it's kind of like going to, do, to the first day of work and finding out that everyone speaks Klingon. You know, it's, it's, it's this like, you know, oh my gosh, what can I actually do here? So that one was kind of tough. Did you have um, culture shock? Well, it sounds like you're saying the culture shock in China was really the most difficult, that, that you had to adjust to that. Yeah, well, I always felt like just one or the other, like if I had just gone to work at a special needs school, just because I, I don't have experience of that, you know, that would have been an adjustment. And I came to really love these kids, but I, I did on the first day or so. Was, I that was an adjustment. Had I just gone somewhere where I didn't speak Chinese, that would have been. But then to lump them together kind of made it more intense. So, Ken, what would you say to people who want to do this? Because I think it's like a great thing. I mean, people, let's say our listeners may be saying, well, you know, he had the opportunity because he has the time and he has the money and he, you know, has those kinds of opportunities, and I could never do that. Uh, what do you say to, to, to someone like that? Well, I do. I work. I have a career. I, I most of these trips I did just with my own vacation time, and then can then came back to work, which is difficult too because you really are working on these trips. So then you know I would come home you know exhausted and feel like I needed a real vacation after that. But no, I think anyone can do it, and that's sort of the appeal here. And and you do pay a program fee, and it's not necessarily cheap, but it is tax deductible if it's a U.S. organization. And I've heard of people, college students, whoever, who raise money to to do these, pay these fees. So um, I think it is probably more accessible than some people think. And I should also say, everywhere I went, there were people in their 60s and their 70s. So and it's not it's not just a college student thing. So there's a variety of people. There's a age groups, the demographics. It sounds like it's just it's all over the the map, which is a good thing. Yeah, it's really a mix of conservatives and liberals and, you know, young people, old people. That, that was one of the things I really liked about it was, because like I say, you're, you're seeing things in different ways. And that's the great thing about these trips, too, is that you're seeing a place in a completely different way. And when, when we were in China, we would walk, we had like a commute. We would walk every day to the school. And I kept saying to my friend, I know there's got to be Westerners here because, you know, the terracotta warriors are nearby. But we were such oddities that people were taking our pictures and then one day we saw the tour bus go by, and then, then we realized, okay, well, that's where all the, the tourists are. They're on the bus, and we're here on the streets. And that's 
one of the great things about these trips. It kind of gets you deeper into what the locals are doing. Yeah, so you're out of your comfort level. and uh, But then, as you described it also, the people that you're helping or are also out of their comfort level having you be there with them. So um, Yeah, and I think for them that's kind of a treat, too, because like I say, for a lot of these people who work these jobs, I think it's fun that they're as interested in we are as us as we are in them. So there's this really cool kind of cultural exchange going on, which I found in, in a lot of cases still goes on. I still keep in touch with a lot of these people. So I know you went to Kenya also. I want to talk about that just for a few minutes because we don't have that much time left. But now you're back, back to work. And uh, are you bored? I mean, after you've done all this, don't you, you know, once you get going and you, you know, you've, I mean, you've done a lot, but uh, there's a lot more out there to do. Do you feel like, gosh, I've got to get out there and just continue this? Well, you know, it's a funny thing. You find, like, you do this sort of journey and it takes you from point A to point B, but the journey never ends, and so I still sort of feel like, okay, what's what's next? But right now I've been focused on trying to helping out the places where I went. So any money I get from the book is going back to the places where I volunteered, and we've already helped out a lot of the places. Like we helped send uh, some of the kids in, Chile, in Kenya that we met. We paid for their school fees from the book. So that's kind of my focus, and, yeah, I feel like you know, the, we all have crossroads, and there's a lot of them. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, that's such good work, and I, I, I guess I didn't realize that, that, that all of these monies went to those people that you, you know, like you're talking to the children. That's fantastic. Oh, you have to write another book now after this one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, all right, Kenya, just a few minutes. What happened in Kenya? We worked at a children's home. And, Is it and, Kenya or Kenya? Uh, I've been saying Kenya, but, uh, you know, maybe I'm screwing it up. But uh, it was a children's home, and there were about 42 kids there who uh, – very sad stories. Many lost their parents to HIV. Some were abandoned. And it was a mix of kids from there was like a six-month-old baby to people who, you know, a girl who had just finished high school and was going to go to college. So we just kind of did whatever they needed. We would fold clothes, do laundry, wash dishes, and, uh, you know, just carry the babies and things like that. Well, let's talk about now, and, and we want people to get out and buy the book, but, but because it's a great book and it's interesting, but also the second part of that is, uh, you know, the monies do go to these children and these, the, the people that you've helped around the world. Voluntourism. Uh, is there a website? Do you have a website that, uh, you know, anybody want, can go to for information that you update? Or I do. You can just, it's just my name. It's Ken Budd, and it's B-U-D-D dot U-S, and there's information on the book and also resources on how to do one of these trips yourself. Yeah, because I think a lot of people are listening think, boy, I'd like to do it. And I imagine you can do it, you can do one thing a year or you can do six or, you know, you just kind of tailor it to whatever you are able to do, right? Yeah, and a lot of the organizations I volunteered with also do trips in the U.S. too. So, you know, you don't have to necessarily go overseas. Um, and, yeah, it's just, you know, it's a way to make connections and see a place in a different way. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. I'm glad you brought that up because you don't necessarily have to go overseas. You don't have to go to China or you don't have to go to uh, Africa, but you can. There are plenty of places here where they need people like you um, who have no skills. And so, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> you have lots of skills, but you sort of uncovered those. And besides, obviously, being a writer and an author, and um, but I think you, as I'm listening to your story, that you it. it brings out a lot of skills that you probably just never imagined that you had. Well, and I, I really came to think that, that a lot of the importance was just being there and being interested. And I felt like in New Orleans, 
you know, this was nine months after the flooding, so people were happy just to have people in the restaurants. And then I've never met airport security people as happy as the people <laughs> in New Orleans then because they were just so thrilled to have tourists. And, and I felt that way in China, that just being at that school and, and showing that we were interested in what they were doing meant a lot to them. And so beyond just the work, I, I really do feel there's this intangible quality that's as poor, important, if not more important. Yeah. Well, it's really exciting stuff that you've done, and obviously it's great that you wrote the book. Um, we can purchase the book online, I assume, bookstores everywhere, easy mm-hmm. to get a hold of? Yes. Yeah, it's uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh, all, those are all on my website as well. Terrific. Um, and I just one last question. Now, is your wife going with you, accompanying you, or give us the update on that? Uh, she came with me to Costa Rica and Kenya, and I have to say this whole experience has been really good for us. You know, and we've, like I said, we've. Someone once compared us to Forrest Gump and Ginny, which I realized made me Forrest. But, uh, but we've known each other since we were in sixth grade, and you know, this sort of forced us to address some things that we hadn't really talked about, and we're just we're in a really good place these days. That's terrific. It's been a pleasure. Great talking to you. Great book, Ken Bud, author of The Voluntourists. Um, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you. It was fun. Great. Our next guest coming up is Barney Salzberg, and he is the author of Arlo Needs Glasses. And as I said before, one out of five school-age children need glasses. And uh, this is this author is here to show us through his book and on the show just how lucky they are. So don't go away. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. If you're a golf enthusiast and looking for some great golf properties in the desert southwest, you'll want to make the Golf Realty Network your weekly stop. Hosted by Jane and Al Anderson, the Golf Realty Network is all about living where you play, on the golf side. You'll hear from the course pros and vendors, while the real estate side will bring you the top agents and brokers who know how to market or find your golf community home. Tune in to the Golf Realty Network, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety, and rebroadcast weekly on Voice America Sports. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com, World Talk Radio, every Wednesday, 10 to 11, and uh, that's live. And uh, you can download the show at the end of the day, uh, MP3, and you could, we archive it so you can listen to it any time. 
My next guest is here with us, Barney Salzberg, and he's author of Arlo Needs Glasses, and this is not his first book because he's written 40 popular children's book books, and uh, this book addresses the issue that one out of five school-age children need glasses, and he is here to show us or to show them just how lucky they are. He does this in the book because if any of you have had kids who've had to wear glasses, they're not happy about it. Well, I had to start wearing glasses at age 45, and I wasn't happy about it. So I do understand. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Barney. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay. So, um, you know, why write a book about children needing glasses? And I, But I do know it is a problem. I mean, especially when you're five years old, kids make fun of you. You're different. They stigmatize you. Um, so... Um, what prompted you to, to to write the book, or to you know, got you aware of this is a, a problem? Well, I, I kind of backed into it. I uh, I'll give you a little little background. I have a, a wonderful dog named Arlo, who is a golden doodle. He's a seventy five pound dog, half half golden retriever and half standard poodle. He he looks like a stuffed animal. <laughs> and my daughter my daughter got him when she graduated college and brought him home to us, thinking we needed a dog, a, a third dog, I might add. And um, I thought from puppyhood I would teach him how to how to play catch, and quickly learned that this dog could not catch a ball to save his life. And I'd never seen anything like it. I mean, I would throw the ball and it would literally bop him on the nose or hit him on the head and just go by him. And he he clearly wanted to play, but he didn't have the the capacity to catch a ball. I've since learned that he can catch food, <laughs> and he can catch a stuffed animal. But there's something about a ball that just eludes him. So I started writing a picture book, a traditional picture book called My Dog Can't Catch. And uh, through working on that for a while, my editor at Workman that I had done um, two other interactive books said, no, this is an interactive book. And she's the one that knew about the fact that one out of five uh, children need glasses. So that's kind of where the book took a turn. And at that point, the title changed so that we would actually reach people who had kids who needed to wear glasses. Um, and, and there's and something... Are, this is, the, Barney, this right. is a book. This is an interactive book for kids? It's interactive. It's got lots of pulls. There's actually four pair of cardboard glasses that you can take out of the book and try on. Um, there's an eye chart that actually, when you pull the tab, you can see what it looks like when it's in focus and how it looks when it's out of focus. So those are things you can't really do in a, in a traditional book. And it was kind of nice to be able to have the manipulatives in there that you can have the kids play with. Well, I think it's important because that's one of the things when kids have to go and to the doctor's office or the optometrist or ophthalmologist, whatever they have to, you know, go through, you know, eye charts and all those things. And it kind of this is this book can be a rehearsal for that because it's frightening when you go and you don't know what's going to happen. But if you absolutely, yeah. And that's really, I mean, you know, from a social work perspective, that stuff is really important. It really does help to allay the kids or the children's fears. So, you know, these kinds of interactive books. Um, we we so, really wanted to demystify the process. You know, yeah. it's not a it's not a, um, a a how-to book per se. I mean, it is a story. It's a, it's a slight story. It's a, but I, I the two messages I wanted to get across when I wrote it were: one, there's a boy who has a dog who has a problem. And he finds a way to help him, which I like that message. It's a little subtle, but I like the message. And then two, for the kids who need to wear glasses, that it's okay. And also, I guess the third part would be for kids who might have a tendency to tease, I think a new appreciation for what it's like to go through it. 
So it's good for the kids who are not wearing glasses, who may have siblings who have to wear glasses or friends or relatives, young kids. So it gives them some, helps them to maybe be more empathetic. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Exactly. Maybe that will help with the bullying kind of attitude. You know, it sort of applies to other things as well. Oh, of course. And and, and the, the thing that I've learned from doing so many books over the years is that to introduce an animal character is sort of... Uh, a nice way to get something across that anyone can relate to, any uh, uh, nationality, any race, any any sex. It's it's a dog, and I think it 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 levels the playing field that way and brings you into a story um, a little less preachy when it's an animal. Yeah, yeah, because everybody does. Everybody loves Arlo, <laughs> um, <laughs> or they should. But, okay, well, just, you know, I want to backtrack a little bit, because you are. I mean, this is, you've written 40 children's books. Um, so let's talk, uh, you know, I want to kind of get a history of how you started doing this, writing children's books, author, you know, where you're coming from or where you came from. Well, I, I studied art in college. I actually, backing up even further, I was, you know, I'm, I'm old enough that the Beatles had a huge impact on me growing up. Yeah, so am and, I. <laughs> and John Lennon, uh, as a guitar player and a singer-songwriter, also drew and I had a book that was given to me when I was fairly young with, with his drawings in it that just knocked me out. And I started, my mom was an artist, and uh, I started to draw. And she would always give me, she never, she did not believe in coloring books. She would give me pads, drawing pads with, with just blank pages for me to fill. She always felt that to uh, encourage my imagination, why color in other people's artwork, make up, make up your own. So uh, my loves have been music and, and drawing all, most of my life. And um, when I got out of college, disco hit. And that kind of put a cramp in my uh, musical career because that was not the route I was going. And uh, I went to take an art class at night while I was doing a straight job working for my father selling shoe leather. And um, Where did you go to college? Uh, well, knowledge? I was at Sonoma State. University, which is north of San Francisco. I'm in California. Um, but I was back in Los Angeles at, at that point because that's sort of, you know, a pretty big music uh, hub to be in. But I took a, a, a turn because of the, the style of music that was so popular at that moment. I knew that wasn't going to be for me. And I took a class, and my teacher loved my idea and actually took it to New York, and I sold a book within the first three months of trying to write children's books. Now that's a story because that doesn't mm. usually, that's very uncommon. Trying mm-hmm. to hit, isn't it? I mean, not just in children's books, but any other. You know, I, I, I definitely uh, was very lucky. And even, even to make that seem amazing or less amazing, I happened to be in New York working with an editor on my book that coming year, following year rather, and um, had drawings in my backpack at the time that I thought would make a great second book and literally walked into a publisher and sold a book in 10 minutes from just walking in off the street. And that just doesn't happen very often. But you must have a certain kind of personality, a way of, you I mean, you, you're creative, the book is great, but you also have to be able to, uh, well, you did it individually, market the book. There's something about you that tracks, you know, these the, mm-hmm. the publishers to you. What is it? <laughs> well, I don't know that it tracks them to me. I, I definitely have that belief that... Um, you have to follow your heart, and uh, that said, you have to be open to listening to an editor's comments and be willing to make some changes in your story. I've never sold a book 
and had what I sent them get published exactly the way it was. So it's one thing to have the tenacity to follow through and meet the people that that would be responsible for letting you publish the book, but it's it's being open to their their feedback and it's a big give and take process. But I've I just have always believed that that what I'm doing is going to work and and acted accordingly. So I've I've sent books out. I'll meet people. I walk up to them and talk to them, and um, it's it's proved very successful for me. And what about the children? Are you poppy? Do the children know you? I mean, you've written all of these children's books. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> do you walk yeah, down the was, street and they point? <laughs> it was very funny. My my children are now twenty two and twenty five. But when my son was about three, four, four years old, we were at Disneyland. And he was used to me coming, you know, he must have been older than that, because he was used to me coming to his elementary school, and I would always get mobbed by all the kids. And when we were at Disneyland, he looked at me and he goes, Dad, I don't think anyone recognizes you with your hat on. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I, I don't have quite that, that recognition, although most people wouldn't have even known Dr. Seuss if he walked into the room, just physically. We, we know their work. You talk yeah. to people and they say, I wrote such and such, they go, oh, yeah. Yeah, what was it? And I don't know. This you probably. I'm not sure you can answer this question because you've written so many books and they are popular. And and as you say, you have a passion for each one you write. Which one did you have the most fun writing? And which one? I mean, do you think had the most impact? If you can. The, that's a, a fairly easy question. The book that came out right before Arlone's glasses is called Beautiful Oops, and uh, it's had a huge impact. It's um. It was really inspired by teachers. I, I travel the world talking about the writing process to all ages, and I have two pictures in my PowerPoint. One shows a painting that a dog stepped on by mistake, and I covered all the paw prints with clouds. And the second one was I spilled a cup of coffee on a sketchbook, and I drew a face in the stain after it dried. And teachers have been saying for years, can you teach in a book how you fix your mistakes? And I tore a piece of paper partway across and looked at it one day and said, it looks like the mouth of an alligator. And then set on to have a blast looking around my office and just my world of what mistakes, you know, what happens in our daily life. We spill things, we smear things, we tear them. And looking at all those things visually, how could I turn them into art? Well, how can you, I have a white dress that somebody spilled red wine on. Give me, how am I going to, what am I going to do about that? I actually wrote a story about that, which was never published. And depending on the stain, you keep staining it. You make a pattern, or you do it, even if it's an abstract. It's a really easy one. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I had somebody, I was at a friend's once, and she had just gotten a puppy and made lovely marks all over her new white carpet. And I offered to draw a picture in each stain. She never took me up on it, but um, I see things in patterns and find faces or designs and the book teaches problem solving through art and I'm getting a lot of letters from parents with kids who are OCD or adults who are OCD and the book is liberating the 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 book ends with the the line when you think you've made a mistake look at it as an opportunity to make something beautiful and it goes way beyond art I love that and and you said you go around the world different responses from different where do you go around the world you know the well it, it, yeah <laughs> Um, I've I've been at schools in Vietnam, um, uh, and I, last year the State Department sent me as the first American children's book author as part of their cultural exchange program to China for 14 days. So I spoke at in five cities at universities, 
TV programs, um, elementary schools, public libraries, high schools, art schools, about the writing process. And it was an education for all of us. Barney, do you find it different, and I would imagine you would, but in different countries they promote creativity and art more than others, and it's more of a challenge in countries where, you know, science and engineering and and they are are more important or take precedence? You're going to get me on my soapbox because that's oh, go ahead. My, my criticism of, of our school system at this point. Um, if I were going to school now um, in elementary school, I would be lost because we're cutting our funding for so many art programs and music programs, and I didn't do well in other subjects. Those are the subjects that made me want to go to school, and if you remove those for the small percentage of people who don't respond to math and art uh, or science, you're you're creating a, a a real problem because there's nothing in school that makes you want to go. So going to China last year, uh, it was really interesting. Um, I would write, I, I would have a, a student come up and just write their name in Chinese, and I would turn every letter into a face, which they loved. But then came the process of let's play now and make up a story using one or all of the characters, whatever combination you like, and improvise. And there was that's not being taught improvisation. It's really not being taught here either. Um, we have a right answer and a wrong answer, and there's no gray matter in the middle. Um, that A lot of discoveries happen from mistakes, and we've kind of removed the ability to make a mistake from our educational systems all over the place. Well, then, I mean, I agree with you, and I think that uh, so someone like you needs to be, you know, we have these, we you can get a, our teachers get degrees in education, undergraduate, master's degrees. Are you in those schools helping to change the curriculum? Helping to change the curriculum, I, you know, I, I interview teachers everywhere I go, and the only time I met a teacher who liked uh, No Child Left Behind was in Canada. Um, we are teaching children to take tests. We're so result-oriented that we want to know that the kids have improved their reading level, and if not, we're going to penalize a school. Uh, there's, it's so much more fundamental than that. So many kids aren't having reading modeled at home so that it's almost like a punishment. You know, eat your vegetables and you can have dessert, read a book and you can watch TV or play a video game. It's not something that they're seeing modeled, unfortunately, enough. I told you I have a soapbox. Um, so to penalize teachers, if their kids' reading scores aren't going up or their test scores aren't going up, it, there's something so wrong with it because the focus now is not to teach; it's just to make sure they can pass a test. So the teachers not, are caught in the yeah they're caught in the yeah, middle of all of this. Yeah. And, so yes, well, is there a way out? A, uh, it, it, we need to change the laws, and unfortunately, um, it sounds good to say we're going to raise the test scores because if we assume that means our children are learning more. And I think the people who make these laws need to spend a lot of time in the schools, and they're not. Because I travel, and I sit in the lunchrooms with the teachers when I go visit, and I hear what they talk about, and uh, they're, they're miserable. And they talk about a revolution. They talk about being able to get rid of this law and be able to go back to teaching. And uh, I don't know what it's going to take, but I think it's a problem. I saw it in countries where they, where they aren't being taught to think, and I don't think we're being taught here to think anymore. We're being told, taught how to give the correct answer. I found so we it have this wonderful. Kind of, yeah, automaton kind of response to education. Just yes. Yeah. After I did Beautiful Oops, someone turned me onto a book called Mistakes That Worked, 
And it had everything from um, Scotchgard, which was originally being made to be an adhesive, and it spilled on a worker's shoe. I learned this from the book. And a few months later, she noticed that was the only part of her shoe that was clean. Ta-da, Scotchgard. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, chocolate chip cookies. All these things that were, were, were invented from mistakes. And we don't have that component built into the learning system, unless maybe you're studying science. But even then, I think a lot of the schools want you to come up with a certain result. And so I think it's really a big problem. Um, I am being sent in September to Russia <laughs> through the State <laughs> Department again. To and visit you might school. not come back. <laughs> <laughs> well, they say a cultural exchange. I'm hoping that re- 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 you know, means I get to come back. <laughs> but uh, I'll get to see another, another country and how they do it there as well. So when you go to Russia, are you going to Moscow? Or are you going to St. Petersburg um, or some remote place in Siberia? Or where are they sending you? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Siberia was on the itinerary. Um, I'm being sent to Moscow initially, and then I'm going to botch the name, but I think it's Samora. It's uh, southeast from there. So those are the two uh, cities I'm going to be. I'm going to go to St. Petersburg at the end of the tour just because I'm going to be so close, but that won't be for work. So what's the agenda when you go there? I mean, it's... it's for what are you supposed to be doing specifically in Samora, you said, in Moscow? Well, going into schools, I know I'm going to be going into an orphanage as well. Um, I bring a guitar with me. I do music. I also love to have a kid come up and make a squiggle and turn it into a face or a character and kind of improvise with them, hopefully as a group, and make up a story. Uh, my, my real appeal is to the reluctant writers, the reluctant artists, the reluctant readers. If we make a squiggle and name it, and put it in a situation with another squiggle that becomes a face, children who are afraid to write or, or to read or to draw are quickly caught up in the whole process. And, and it is rather sneaky, but I do get letters from teachers saying, that's all my kids want to do after you leave. And they're now involved in story making. And, and I really believe that we all have a story, and it's, an, it's, it's finding your voice. So that's sort of my message when I go out, is to help these kids find that. And I do that wherever I go, whether it's for elementary school or college. You're the Pied Piper of, of mm-hmm. creativity. <laughs> and I'm thinking yeah. of you sitting in a Russian, you know, in a classroom. These kids have probably never experienced anyone like you. I, I, had a, I was at a school in China where the, the women were all learning to be teachers. They were all in their 20, early 20s and late teens. And one of the women, through an interpreter, said, are all the men in America like you? No. And I, <laughs> one of the women from the State Department said, thank God, no. <laughs> they were laughing. Yeah. We need I, it, more it, men like you. We need more men. There, yeah. well, thank you. Thank yeah. you. I think you. Yeah, I think that perhaps there are some women like you, but that you know, men. I, I'm not sure what that is. It's the testosterone, or you know, uh, that whole issue of creativity. Men are afraid to go to museums. I, uh, old grown men, some of them. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's interesting. I think at this point in my my life that I I'm really seeing the focal point is play. We've, we've, we've really removed play from our lives as children and adults. Um, and, and I think to see a man, I'm 57 now, coming into a school and being silly with kids, is, it's unusual for them. But I think it's great for them to see it. 
I, I think what you said, I want to, because I think that is, we only have a few minutes left, but that's a really yeah. kind of critical point to leave people with because that whole issue of play and it's not just with children. I know I'm guilty of it. I plan a trip. I travel a lot. But there has to be, I find myself thinking, well, I have to go to a different place. I have to have a purpose for going there. I have to have a reason. It has to be you know, fulfilling rather than just, you know, go. And, you know, like every day should be planned so that uh, I'm, I'm, um, doing something that that's worthwhile and that's have you met my wife no. <laughs> no. <laughs> i think that's i think that's more the norm than not and yeah. i think some days to just get up and go let's mess around let's let's you know take a bottle cap and float it in the gutter when the rain comes and, and yeah. pretend it's a boat you know that kind of play there's something yeah. wonderful about it and and i think going back to arlo needs glasses it's it's seeing uh, a, a dog doing what people do, which in and of itself is is kind of fun, and and well, you'll see, if you look at the book, yes. <laughs> he plays. He actually there's some Arlo. play in there, and I I do want to get that message across in in whatever I'm working on that we can play still. All right, Arlo needs glasses. You can buy it online, bookstores everywhere, and then of course website. You have a website? Does Arlo have a website? Uh, uh, Arlo should have a website, but there's a lovely video if you haven't seen it yet. If you go to BarneySaltzburg.com or to Workman.com or even just type it into YouTube, Arlo Needs Glasses, um, we actually, I made a pair of glasses for my dog and got them to stay on him with some bobby pins, and he is reading the book in the video. Uh, right. it's, it's cute. Yeah, that's great. Now, last question. What about your own children? What did you say? They are how old? They're in their twenties. Uh, my my daughter's twenty five. She went to Berkeley and studied English Lit. So she's working in New York. She's a closet writer, but she had to have a job. Uh-huh. You know, that works. And my son's at Northeastern uh, in Boston, and he's um, studying business. I, and, I, I was uh, waiting for that. One yeah. of them had to be a nuclear physicist. And... Well, my wife is an attorney, so we always uh, said we made a complete brain. So the kids, we thought, would be more balanced, but they seem to have the, the opposite. <laughs> One's a writer and one wants to do business. Yeah, but well, you did a good job. That's great. And uh, yeah, But I'm sure they're thanks. both somewhat cre- They appreciate the creativity, I would imagine, right? Yeah, well, I was the dad and mommy and me, and they kind of grew up with the studio at home where there was always fun stuff happening. So, yeah, it's it's in their DNA whether they like it or not. What's your next project that we can look forward to? Um, well, I am doing a book called Two Plus Two Equals Banana, um, which gets <laughs> back to name. the whole theory yeah. of play. And then I have a book coming out in the fall called Andrew, Drew, and Drew with Abrams. And it is a book that looks a little like Harold in a Purple Crayon, huh. but it talks about the philosophy of creativity as you go through the pages and drawings unfold with multiple flaps. And I'm really excited in the fall. I'll do an Arlo Needs Glasses and Andrew, Drew, and Drew book tour across the country when I'm back from Russia. Well, I have to see you when you're on your next book tour. Before we got on the yeah. air, you said, you, yeah, you would, I mean, right now in Albany, and you had been here, and I missed you. So, yeah, uh, yeah <laughs> I don't want to miss you the next time now that we've talked. Good deal. Deal. Yeah. We'll, we'll let you know when I know where I'm going. Yeah. <laughs> but you don't always know where you're going, do you? This is true. Yeah. That's the beauty of it. Anyway, great talking to you this morning. Likewise. Having, yeah, having you on the show. Barney Salzberg and... The title of his book is Arlo Needs Glasses, but he's also written 39 other books, which you can go online, take a look at, and just mention the website one more time, or two websites you mentioned. Well, Barney Salzberg, it's B-A-R-N-E-Y-S-A-L-T-Z, like zebra, B-E-R-G.
com or Workman has Arlo and Beautiful Hoops and another book called Good Egg. But I'm I'm around. You can find me. Just Terrific. don't put the dinosaur. All right. Just come back from Russia and we'll <laughs> have a good day. Thanks. Right. Thanks so much. All have right. a great Thank day. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Catherine Zock Show. I had uh, two great guests today. We had a really good time with them, and I hope you did, too. You can listen to us every Wednesdays, 10 to 11, live. And uh, we archive the show at the end of the day, so you can uh, listen to it any time. And uh, have a great week, and uh, listen to the Catherine Zock Show next Wednesday at 10. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Catherine Zock Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.